Well, good morning, everybody. The Bible's divided into an Old Testament and New Testament. Both Testaments testify uh, to a remarkable truth that our passage will testify to as well. And uh, the third book of the New Testament is Matthew, Mark, Luke is Luke. And so if you turn there to Luke chapter 15, and if you don't have a Bible, I believe there's some right in front of you somewhere. If not, you'll see some of the verses on the screen, help you follow along. Some have a notion about heaven that the activity in heaven will be boring. That perhaps people will be sitting on clouds of cotton strumming harps. Maybe we'll just be sitting around a table talking. Might surprise you to know that in heaven there'll be full spontaneous outbreaks of celebration. There'll be festive parties all the time. That's what heaven will be like. That's what heaven is like. You may ask, okay, what will cause these outbreaks of joy? What will, what will stimulate these celebrations? Is it all the good things that Christians are doing? Is it all the good things being done by good people? I mean, is it people who turn from temptation? They helped another person. Is that, is that what will bring these spontaneous celebrations in heaven? Is it good people doing good things, but it might surprise you to know that's not the case? What stimulates these celebrations in heaven are bad people. Rebellious, violent, permissive people. You're nervous right now whose guilt and sin have been washed by the grace of God. This is what brings spontaneous celebrations in heaven. And if this brings discomfort in your spirit, you're not alone. It did for another group of good guys. The Gospel of Luke and Luke throughout his Gospel is consistent of putting good people on one side, bad people on the other side, and Jesus right in the middle. It's never more true than when we read this passage this morning. This is a familiar story. You'll find it in Luke 15, verse 11 through 32. It has been come to known as the prodigal son. As we'll talk in a, uh, a few moments, that's an unfortunate title. Um, but there's a lot here. And uh, so let's read it if you'd follow along with me. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. A certain man had two sons. And to the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. He divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. There he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, and a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need, and he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up, go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son Make me as one of your hired men. He got up and 
came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead, and he's come to life again. He was lost, and he's been found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard musicians, or he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring about these things might be. He said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry. He was not willing to go in. His father came out and began entreating him, but he answered and said to his father, Look, for 70 years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that would be a goat, that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. And you said to him, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead. He's begun to live. He was lost and has been found. This story is, is a remarkable story for a lot of reasons. I said it's probably familiar to a lot of you. But if you want to understand the context of it, you need to go to verse 1 and 2. And I want you to note the tension. This is the context of where this story is told. This is the group listening. Now all the tax collectors and sinners, verse 1 says, were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now understand the Jewish emphasis on tax collector and sinners was spoke with disdain, was spoke with great pride looking down upon these people. You had the good people on the outside muttering, pointing, huddled together, but Jesus is found with the worst people of the day. The interesting part is the good people didn't get it. And so Jesus tells three stories with a purpose. And they're told to the good people on the outside to help them understand what he was all about. The first story you'd see in verse 3 through 7, it's about a farmer who lost a sheep. The second story is verse 8 through 10, it's about a woman who lost a coin. The third story, which we just read, is about a father who lost a son. But the progression's the same in each of the stories. Something was lost, something was found, and there was celebration. That's the same pattern in each of these stories. But from these three stories, a continual theme emerges. We'll see it here. Let's go first look at verse 7. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who find no need of repentance. Verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 22 through 24, the father said to the slaves, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand. Sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry, for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost, has been found, and they began to celebrate. Verse 32, when he had been merry and rejoiced for this brother of yours was dead, has begun to live and was lost and has been found. You see the theme and you see it emerge 
throughout this whole chapter over and over in each of the stories, and that is this. When one who is lost embraces the grace of Jesus, heaven throws a spontaneous celebration. This is what gets heaven shouting. The worst people in our day, the worst people in our world desperately need to be found. They're worthy of our pursuit. This is why Jesus was often found in the crowds, among the crowds. You see, heaven waits for those who are lost to come to the Father so they can start up the party. That's what gets heaven excited. So we see that theme that the, when the lost embraces the grace of Jesus, heaven throws a spontaneous uh, party. But let's look at this lost son briefly. There's a lot here, and the story again might be familiar. But in verse 11 through 12, we're not told why the son left. We don't know what prompted this request, but it certainly wasn't protocol to do so. Maybe he was bored. Maybe he's tried to make a name for himself. Maybe he felt he couldn't measure up to the older brother. It's a thought to ponder. We don't know. But it's safe to speculate, in addition to the other reasons, he did not know how good he had it. Maybe like in the Garden of Eden, going way back, they saw the one tree they couldn't have and thought, ah, maybe I'll taste of that one. We don't know. All we know is he came to Dad and said, I want my half. The younger son lived with the father. He lived with a father who loved him, comforted him. He had security, but the lure of the world captivated him. And the father granted the request amazingly. He gave inheritance, and he even gave the freedom to walk away. And we learn in this parable that God is like the father. Maybe we so often are like the son. At times we'll say God is far away. Why does he seem so distant? But it's not God who left. It's us. And perhaps consciously or unconsciously, like the son, we've held God at arm's length. It's we who've been seduced and consumed by lesser allures. This is really what it means to be lost. We, not God, are in a far country. But when, comes, when somebody comes to know how wonderful our Father is and how lost and empty we are apart from Him, our hearts long for home. And maybe you've experienced in your life those moments in your life where maybe you were participating in activity or you found yourself in a place in life that you didn't know how you got to and there was that part of you that longed for something else. That part of you that longed for something called home. Maybe you came to Jesus at a young age and like this son right here, you looked at the allures in the world and said, I've got to find out what's out there. I've got to check this out. It seems like all these other people are having a lot of fun and you got out there and found out how empty you were, and that there was that thing within your heart, the Spirit of God, that wooed you to come home. You find yourself in this story, don't you? And what is it that awaits a wanderer? What is it that awaits the lost? The Heavenly Father. You see, a person's choice, a son's choice, to be so far away was both a sadness to the Father and an offense. Sometimes we tend to think of only the offense, and it is indeed that. We also have a God who's sad by that. What the Son did not know, and maybe you don't know either, is that the Father's eyes have turned toward the horizon watching, waiting for that Son to come home. He'd been there the whole time. The text certainly seems to imply and, and teach that the Father waited and looked. 
each day hoping there'd be a dot on the horizon that would come and get a little closer and a little closer. He waited. He longed. Because that's what a loving father does. It's interesting as we read that story, we, we often put a period after the lost son. When he returns and a party's thrown, we tend to put a period and then we put a P.S. Oh, there was an older son. Almost as an afterthought. But the whole flow of the text, the structures of the story, lead us to a dramatic conclusion. They lead us to a challenge, and it's not the prodigal son, it's the older son. It's a challenge to the Pharisees. It's a challenge to us about our attitudes towards the lost. The stories wrap around and bring us back to verse 2. That there's good people complaining about Jesus being with the bad people. In the profile of the older brother, without understanding the culture that day, we might tend to say, hey, the outside brother, the older brother, he had a point. I mean, how come dad didn't do anything cool for him? I mean, here he is, he's looking at the son who kind of went away and squandered everything. Father's making a big deal about that. And here's the older brother saying, wait a minute. I've been slaving here. And you might look at the older brother and said, yeah, I'm with him. <laughs> He's not the good guy in the story. Beware of siding with the older brother. He's not the good guy. Jesus goes on to elaborate. And beware of siding with the older brother because you might see yourself in him. Let's look at this angry older brother. Just by way of quick overview again with a father in this parable is god the prodigal is the lost son the wayward son the one who wandered from the father the older brother is who the pharisees the good people of the day the religious people of the day and verse 25 tells us something pretty cool the older son was in the field when he came and approached the house look what he heard he heard music he heard dancing that had to get his attention. Long day in the field, tired, and he hears a party going on. He heard it. Could have been cool in the gang, celebrate, right, Jay? All right. He might have heard cool in the gang. He heard some celebration going on, got his attention. In verse 26 through 27, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. The servant said to him, Your brother, he's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Now notice the servants recognize the goodness of this moment. Your brother, your father, they're celebrating. They're celebrating this reunion. And so the servant recognizes the goodness of the moment. And his words point to a relationship. This is your brother. This is your father. Also to a responsibility. Because in that culture, the older son was a key figure in gatherings. He was to be the greeter. He was to assist the dad. If I put myself in that context, Benjamin, my oldest son, would be the one who'd greet people and he'd assist me in that celebration. That was the culture of the day. But where is this oldest son? There's nowhere to be found. We're not entirely sure why. He's not there. But he's not there. And he hears about this party, and because he hears about it, 
automatically there should have been a thought, oh man, I've got to get in there and assist dad because that's what my responsibility is. So the servant comes and speaks to him of a relationship, your brother, your father, and then speaks of a responsibility. There's a party going on. By implication, you should get in there. You have a responsibility. But verse 28 says that's not what happens. He became angry. And he was not willing to go in. For those people who make the argument, my anger overwhelmed me. And I did this because I was angry. Remember this verse. Anger is not an excuse. There's a willingness when it comes to anger. And we see that connection right here. He's angry. It's interesting to know the most common words used for anger in the Greek. The one means sudden and outburst of anger, but that's not the word Jesus uses. The word Jesus uses means meditative, seething, like a slow simmer. It's a, it's a very instructive thought. Perhaps this older brother, he'd been simmering and angry for some time. This is my thought. My thought is the older brother saw the father waiting. And the older brother began to get hot. He left. He took half his estate. Why does the father care? And I believe deep down in his spirit, bitterness began to come, and he became angry. And it just exploded when his younger brother came home. He was not willing to go. It was a choice of refusal. And it was a large offense to the father. With all the family, with all the friends, with his brother in celebration, he's totally disengaged. He's on the outside. And he refuses to go to this party out of anger. In verse 29, he says, look, as he talks to the father, look, I have slaved for you. He's absorbed in his own goodness, like the Pharisees were. It's as if in his idea, his performance was the real issue. Amazing, the older brother is caught up in such lesser things, yet something big was happening on the inside. His brother was lost, had been found, and this older brother is worried about a goat that he hadn't received yet. He's upset there was no party for him. In his anger, he's lost sight And so he refuses to go to the party. He's mad. He's mad about his lost brother. The church in America is mad. We're mad about all the bad people. We're mad about all the bad things they're doing. Politicians. Prayer out of school. Condoms in. And the list goes on and on. As a matter of fact, I made a list. It's probably a brief list. But here's what you'll find many Christians really angry about. We're angry prayers been taken out of school. We're angry about gay people having rights. We're angry about abortion. We're angry because this country isn't what the founding fathers envisioned. We're angry that a Democrat's in the White House. We're angry about evolution. We're angry about feminism. We're angry at Muslims. We're angry that people have guns. And we're angry that someone might take guns away. We're angry with people on government assistance. We're angry at the Boy Scouts. We're angry at the Girl Scouts. We used to get angry about the divorce rape. That's kind of given up on that. We're angry about things that aren't happening, such as the Pledge of Allegiance being banned in public schools. America, the church, is mad. It seems we're long on mad and short on mercy. 
church is mad. And could it be that in the church's anger, we're missing the party? And could it be like the older brother, because we're mad, we've disengaged? And we, like the older brother, are on the outside. And getting madder and madder. You see, a similar response to an older brother and many in the church back in the Old Testament is a story about a guy named Jonah. You probably know the story a little bit. The city is called Nineveh. It's a violent city in the Assyrian Empire. During this time, Jonah goes there. It was a practice to take the enemy, to decapitate them, stack the heads on wagons, unless it was a leader, in which case they would fillet and gut them and hang them on the wall by his skin. That was the practice in Nineveh. Maybe you understand why now Jonah was a little hesitant about going there. Kind of hard to blame him, isn't it? Kind of hard to go to those kind of people and tell them, <clears throat> you might want to quit sinning. And yet that's what God called him to do. And he does. To his credit, Jonah does go. They repent. And probably is the greatest revival in history takes place in Nineveh. You would think Jonah would be pretty excited. I mean, if I went and preached and had that kind of response, I'd be pretty excited. Not Jonah. He's outside the city. Matter of fact, the text makes it clear he's outside. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. It greatly displeased Jonah. He became angry. Look, sound familiar? He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said? I was still in my own country. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew... You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better than life. Jonah's on the outside of the city, pouting, entrenched in anger about all the bad people that God showed compassion to. He missed the party. Because there's a whole lot bigger things going on than his little pity party. And when you and I become entrenched in anger about all the bad things, the, all the bad people are doing, we miss the party. In Cleveland, Ohio, there's a church called the Gospel House. It's made up of saved gang members, prostitutes, drug users. And it started by two ministers who had a prison ministry, and they went into prisons and were leading people to Christ, and these people would get released and they'd come to church and it was made abundantly clear they weren't welcome there. You see the tattoos, the piercings, the past convictions and past life, they were met with attitudes, we don't want these types here. What were the people saying? We don't want bad people in our church. So God led them to start a new church. It's a thriving church where everyone's welcome. We should be reminded from this story that the focus of heaven is not our goodness but the bad people who've been enslaved to sin and bondage despair whose lives have been changed by the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. You see the parable and the profile of the older brother is convicting. He's totally disengaged. He's disconnected from the real party. You want to shout at him, hey, there's a lot bigger party going on than you. 
This isn't about you. There's something remarkable going on about a father's compassion and father's love for your brother. And you're missing it. In your anger, you're missing it. In verse 30, the tone is really revealing. As he says to the father, but when this son of yours, notice the disengagement, not my brother, when this son of yours, total disconnect of a relationship. Contrast to the servant's words when a servant came and said, your brother. Totally disengaged. And disengaged himself from the relationship, disengaged himself from the responsibility for the lost. This older brother's disengagement is as sinful as the younger brother's licentious, careless living. And at the end of the story, we realize both sons have brought disgrace to the father. Now, you would expect the father to be outraged. The older son stands him up, doesn't come and assist him, doesn't even come to the party, doesn't even come to celebrate. You would think that this father would be ticked. Look at verse 31. Notice the tenderness. My child, you've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate. For this brother of yours was dead. He's begun to live and he was lost. He's been found. There's no rejection here. The father came out and another translation said began imploring him. In other words, it was a continual. It wasn't a one-time thing. He was entreating him. And just as the father welcomed back the younger with grace and mercy, he entreats the older son as he does to you right now. The story really should be called the loving father, not the prodigal son. Because we see the love of the father both demonstrated towards the prodigal son, but maybe even more so towards the older brother, the angry brother. It really causes you and I to stop and say, where am I? Which which one of those two am I? The father says we had to celebrate. We had to be glad. Because he came home. There's something greater going on here. And we get a glimpse into it because Jesus tells us that what we see on earth is that a son came home, but what's happening in heaven is there's a party going on. So great is God's love and compassion that heaven is ignited and compelled to celebrate when someone comes back into that love. I personally believe it's not just when someone comes to faith in Christ. I think heaven celebrates when someone who came to faith in Christ walked away but comes home. I believe heaven celebrates. My question to you is, have you remained on the outside of lost because of your anger? Have you remained on the outside because of the state of the bad people around you? Are you engaged with the lost, pointing them to the Heavenly Father? Sometimes as Christians, we're known more for what we're against than what we're for. And that's a tragedy in and of itself. I came across a remarkable article. Authors Rosario Champagne Butterfield. I'm going to read from it because this is her words, this is her story. 
The word she says, Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and my wrath. And as a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant, meant knowing little else. After my tenure, a book was published. I used my post to advance the understandable allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor. My life was happy, meaningful, and full. My partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue, and our Unitarian Universalist Church, to name a few. She goes on to say, I began to research the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me. To do this, I would need to read the book that they had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track. The Bible. I launched my first attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus, the Republican politics, and patriarchy in the form of an article in the local newspaper about promise keepers in 1997. This article generated many rejoinders, so many I'd kept my Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. But she says, one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from a pastor. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Pastor Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? He didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond. But I didn't throw it away. She goes on to say, With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing a church to me, a heathen. Well, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay parade marches that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone else was going to hell as cl was clear as blue sky. That's not what Ken did. He did not mock me. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at that time weren't really were straightforward though. Surely this will be a good this, surely this will be good for my research. But something else happened. Ken and his wife and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate and vulnerable. He repented of sin right in front of me. He thanked God for all things Ken's God was holy and firm, yet it was clear he was also full of mercy. And she ends her article this way. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I didn't want to lose everything I had. But the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace 
when community and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. I've not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life. You see what she's testifying to? There was one who engaged her, who wasn't mad at her because of her lifestyle, but engaged her. And you know what happened? Because of that, heaven celebrated. Heaven celebrated a woman named Rosario coming home, coming to the Father because of a man named Ken and a wife named Floyd. You and I are all invited to see ourselves in this text, and there's two options. To the get disengaged, the Father implores you like He did the older son for you to come to the party. To engage with the lost. To lead them to the Heavenly Father. To see beyond the behavior and see a heart that desperately needs Jesus Christ. I encourage you to talk with them. Invite them to dinner, to an outing. Sit next to them at break time at work or in a cafeteria and let them know you care. Engage them. Maybe it would be help in the morning to pray for divine appointments. I like to do that. God, I believe you want to lead me to somebody today. Help me to be aware who that is, when that is. It would be a good way to pray. But I also want to speak to you who are lost. The Father's holding His arms wide to you. And right now as you sit here and you're in the middle of a lot of people, but God sees deep down and you'd have to confess that you're lost and you're empty. Like the prodigal you've engaged in allures that the world has to offer and you're here right now, maybe for the sole reasons because you know you need something. You need the Father. See, Jesus came to save you and I from the pigsty of sin into a relationship with God, forgiven, where we can enjoy God forever. Maybe you need to do what the son did when he repented and said, I've sinned against heaven and against you. It's one thing to say I've sinned, but the prodigal son took the step that's necessary. I've sinned against you, God. It's you I've sinned against. That's repentance. And that's what he did. And some of you need to repent today. Some of you may have come to the door and said, I've never had a relationship with God. I've never known what it's like and I'm empty and I want the Father this morning, but I guarantee some of you here came to Jesus at a young age and you walk in and you know, I've wandered. My heart is so far from the Father. And you're not here by accident. You're here because there's a Father on the horizon who's been waiting for you. And even this day waits for you. This morning you can come home. And when you do that, heaven's ready I mean, heaven's ready. The party's all set. And I believe the party's going to happen in a minute here. So no matter where you're at, the text calls you and I to repent. Maybe we're the older brother, the older son. In our anger, we've disengaged from the lost around us. Or maybe we're the lost son. Either way, there's a call to you and I to repent this morning. Your older son or a younger son. Let's bow this morning before the Lord in prayer. Lord, I recognize sometimes familiarity of a text can make it difficult for us to enter into it. 
But I trust that's not the case this morning. As you sit out here this morning and the Spirit's speaking to you and you're grappling with this story right now. All heads are bowed. I want to ask you to do a courageous thing. If right now God is speaking to you and you recognize you're lost, or maybe you've wandered as a Christian and you know you need to come home, by way of faith and by way of taking a step, just slip your hand up and slip it down. That's all you need to do. Slip it up, slip it down. Thank you for that. Maybe as you bow, you see a lot of yourself in that older son. You've become known more for what you're against than what you're for. If you find yourself this morning saying, I need to repent of the sin of being the older son, you just slip your hand up quick. Hands all over. No matter where you're at, I'm going to invite you to repent. In this moment, repentance is simply saying, Father, I've sinned against you. Forgive me. Help me to turn away from that sin to follow you. And I want to just respect what your Spirit's doing in your heart right now and allow you to do that. I'm just going to give you some moments of silence. This is just you and the Father right now. Speak to Him. Father, I would venture to say maybe all of us or part of us all feels we need to repent. Like the older brother, we're really angry with the state of affairs in our nation and our world. And it's been much easier to huddle with those who are disengaged and who fuel our sense of self-righteousness than it is to engage with those who are lost. It's easier. It's just not right. And in doing so, we miss the party. Lord, I pray that you would give us a fresh vision, a vision of your Holy Spirit to see beyond the behaviors of people, and to see a heart's yearning for you, to stand for righteousness, absolutely, but to show people the love and compassion of God. Help us to do that. And Lord, I specifically pray for those who've raised their hands as well, who have confessed they're lost or they need to come home. Give them the assurance of your embrace this morning. And that you've longed for this moment. And that so great is this moment that all of heaven right now is celebrating. Might we celebrate all that you're doing all that you will continue to do. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.
Let's stand.